0: I've been following the climate conversation since the early 2000s, and initially it was so complex and so broad that I simply couldn't get my head around it at all. Many thoughts about why it's happening and what's causing it flashed through my head at different times and went down many rabbit holes until I finally surfaced when I realised that it's the economy, our disruptive and tyrannical-like economy, an economy that favours just a few and leaves the rest way out in the cold. I rejoiced when I came across a book by the co-founder of Scientists for the Future and the former Secretary-General of the German Advisory Council on Global Change, Marja Goppel. The book was called Rethinking Our World, An Invitation to Rescue Our Future. She said many things in the book, but one that caught my eye immediately was, was this. For almost 50 years now, we have lived in a sado reality that we created for ourselves by following monetary rather than physical and biological indicators. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. However, before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast, for if you do that, you will be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. The idea that the economy is at the root of all our troubles, including the climate crisis, is driven home to me repeatedly at every lecture I sit through, at every webinar I participate in, and every meeting I attend. In fact, I was at a meeting just recently where the discussion was about biodiversity and species extinction. And while the conversation was wide and varied, if you looked at that forensically, you could reduce the whole conversation to the economy, how the profit motive was at the root of all our troubles. Yes, the profit motive sees the felling of our forests to produce timber. The profit motive sees the expansion of palm oil plantations all around the world. Yes, the profit motive sees the destruction of the Amazon forest so we can create farmland where we can graze and grow beef and where we can grow various crops that will feed other animals in other parts of the world. And yes, we fill in and build over swamp lands, lands that are incredibly important for bird life and many other critters and all that is in the name of profit. Here we stand with capitalism, supercharged by neoliberalism, with its hand at our throat. And if we are to break the grip that the climate crisis has on our world community, then we have to look at how our world operates itself economically. We have to break that grip that capitalism and neoliberalism have on the way the world works. Now I must give you a break from that rant and get on with some news, some news of the climate crisis. Australia's Minister of Energy and Science was a guest recently on Radio National's Breakfast Show and you can hear the Minister, Ed Husic, being interviewed by the host, Patricia Carvelis. You'll find a link for the entire interview in the show notes.
1: The early evidence suggests the federal government's intervention on energy markets has had the desired effect with the budget showing bills will go up by 10% instead of the expected 36%. But that hasn't stopped the gas industry criticising government intervention, which has been a theme at this week's Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association conference. In a speech to the Energy Users Conference later today, the Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husic, will defend the government's approach, saying cheap energy is essential to the economy and, of course, uh, the industry he represents. He joins me in the studio now. Minister, welcome to the program.
2: Hi. Oh, it's amazing I got blamed for cutting off discussions around sport, especially when I'm in Melbourne, but that's just life, isn't it? I know. I set you up. I, I just, ah, just, ah, just ah, jokes. that. Sorry, Warwick.
1: We're going to talk about your speech in a moment, but how much of a blow is the US President's decision to postpone his visit to Australia in terms of the success of this Quad Summit?
2: Look, obviously it's regrettable, but it's also understandable. He's got uh, very big pressures... Uh, at home in terms of the way that Congress is potentially going to make decisions around the debt ceiling. So you appreciate he's got to make those calls. But we've got this very strong relationship with the US. It's obviously been strengthened by uh, things that we're doing uh, around AUKUS, uh, for instance, plus a lot of the work that we can do together in light of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, being able to reduce emissions, increase manufacturing capability in our respective countries. So... Uh, I think you know if he's not here now, he'll be here sometime down the track and we'll be uh, warmly welcoming him at that point.
1: He's staying, as you say, to resolve negotiations with Congress over lifting the debt ceiling. What happens if he fails and the US defaults? How how would that be felt in the Australian economy?
2: I think he will obviously be working very hard for that situation to not happen. We've uh, danced this dance before, as the phrase goes. We've seen what's uh, uh, previously been the case uh, there um, in terms of when Congress has decided to take a, or make a call uh, that runs contrary to, to fixing and that resolving that situation really quickly. So I reckon we'll let this play out, but I, I think we'll get to a, a good place and I think that's why he's wanting to stay there to focus on just that.
1: Moving to your portfolio issues, the gas industry wants certainty for future investment. Minister, if we're trying to reduce our emissions and to switch to renewables, how many more gas plants are you actually expecting to be built?
2: I think uh, there is clearly going to be a role as we transition and we're working very hard to ensure that we get that transition underway, setting targets, putting in safeguard mechanisms, some of the investments we're making in renewable energy generation uh, in my space within the National Reconstruction Fund. We're looking to build that but in the interim gas still plays a role and i i talk to a lot of industries that rely on gas uh you've seen some you know fairly uh big announcements in terms of what might happen with narrabri and Beetaloo. and i know that that's not everyone's cup of tea but i imagine that in the interim those those fields will meet domestic needs while we work very hard on attending to. You know, boosting renewable energy generation. They don't
1: meet everyone's cup of tea, as you put it, because... That's the
2: very gentle way in which I'm well, saying
1: it. Well, you are, but mm. we, we're, we're meant to get to net zero. We we need to reduce emissions. Uh, we know that the planet is warming. That's why they don't meet people's cup of tea criteria. Yeah,
2: no, I know. But we're also a government that is committed to a target. Uh, we've committed to net zero. And we've, uh, beyond the talk, we're walking the walk, with respect to Aren't you trying to have it both ways? Scale up. Well, I'm just making the point that if you look at the commitment to those, we, we will get there, factoring in all these things, and we are determined to make sure we send the strongest possible signal to industry that we need to work together to make that happen.
0: And now we have a story from The Times, written by Annabelle Workman, who is a Research Fellow at the Melbourne Climate, Futures and Melbourne School of Population, and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. The story has the headline, Study finds two billion people will struggle to survive in a warming world, and these parts of Australia are most vulnerable. Annabelle's story begins. Two billion people, including many Australians, will find themselves living in dangerously hot places this century if global warming reaches 2.7 degrees Celsius. Research released today reveals. The authors calculated how many people would be left outside the human climate niche by 2100. The niche is defined as places with an average temperature of about 13 degrees Celsius or about 27 degrees Celsius in the tropics. Human population has historically peaked in these areas. The world is on track for 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. This would push a third of people on Earth outside the human climate niche. This includes people in parts of Northwest Australia, such as Darwin, Broome and Port Hedland, and includes parts of Southeast Asia, India and South America. Limiting warming to 1.5 degrees would substantially reduce the number of people exposed, including those most affected in Northwest Australia. You'll find a link to that story by Annabelle Workman in the show notes. Now here's your chance to get involved practically in the Climate Conversation. If you can, get to Geelong on Thursday night to the Geelong Library and Heritage Centre, where you can hear corporate lawyer Robert Hinckley talk about taming corporations to relieve the climate emergency. Hinckley says we should legally challenge the goal of all companies to prevent them from causing severe damage or harm to the environment. He calls it the Code of Corporate Citizenship, and he describes in his book, Time to Change Corporations, Closing the Citizen Gap. The event is being organised by the Centre for Climate Safety and you'll find details about that Thursday May 25 event in the show notes. It starts at 5 o'clock and continues through to 6.30pm. Don't forget, go to the show notes. Also in the show notes will be a link to an open letter that you can sign calling on the Australian Government to adopt the Code for Corporate Citizenship. Next we have a story from the Economic Times. It's by David Fickling, and the headline for the story is There Won't Be a Saudi Arabia of the Green Hydrogen Age. The story begins, If you want a symbol of our energy is a global industry as fundamental as the trades in metals or government bonds, one image has held sway for decades. The monumental black and red hull of a crude oil supertanker. It's only natural, then, that a world transitioning to cleaner sources of energy should seek out a comparable emblem for the zero era. A prime candidate to replace petroleum is another substance that can be moved around in tankers, green hydrogen, so-called because it's produced using renewable energy to split apart water molecules. You'll find a link to that story in the show notes. Next, we have a story from Yale Climate Connections about racehorses and heat.
3: I'm Dr. Anthony Lisewitz, and this is Climate Connections. Every year, millions of people watch the Triple Crown races, awed by the speed and agility of thoroughbred horses on the track. These animals are powerful, but they can also be vulnerable, especially when it's hot.
4: Exertional heat illness essentially refers to when horses become too hot while they're exercising and their internal temperature gets too high, and then they become ill.
3: That's Leah Trigg of the University of Bristol Veterinary School in the UK. She reviewed hundreds of cases of heat illness in horses to identify the main risk factors. She found that longer races are more likely to cause heat stress. Horses that have suffered from a bout of heat illness in the past are far more likely to exhibit symptoms again. And racing in hot, humid conditions, especially when a horse is not accustomed to it, significantly increases the chance of heat illness. She says that as the climate warms, the risk is growing. The research highlights the need for tracks to provide cool-down facilities with shade and access to water that can be used to rapidly cool the horses.
4: And really to plan now and put in place the policies that will ensure that horse welfare is protected in a changing climate.
3: Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
0: Now let's stay with Yale Climate Connections and hear about what's happening in Wisconsin in the U.S.
3: I'm Dr. Anthony Leizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Wisconsin aims to fully transition its electrical grid to clean, carbon-free energy sources by 2050. But Andrew Kell of the nonprofit Renew Wisconsin says there's an opportunity to do more. If you focus only on the electric grid, you are ignoring all the emissions that still happen in the transportation sector. And same thing with natural gas and other petroleum products being burned in homes and businesses for heating. His group partnered on research about the costs and benefits of eliminating carbon pollution from those sectors, too. It would require fully transitioning to electric vehicles and electrical HVAC systems and developing renewable energy projects to power them all with clean electricity. Those changes would take large investments, but Kel says the climate, people's health, and the economy would benefit. The results showed over 3% increase to gross state product by the year 2050 with regards to all the clean energy development that will occur within the state compared to importing fossil fuels from outside of the state. So his group encourages the state to go beyond cleaning up the electric grid and prepare for a future where clean energy powers homes and vehicles too. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
0: Now let's shift to a story from the ABC. That's the Australian Broadcasting Commission. And the headline for the story is Western Victorian wind farm plans fail to mention Brolga nest, say Brewster residents. Residents of Brewster, west of Ballarat, are worried a wind farm proposed for the area will be approved despite its proximity to populations of an endangered bird. Wind energy company RE Future has submitted a planning permit for a seven-turbine, 42-megawatt wind farm, which under new planning provisions will bypass council and be assessed directly by Victoria's planning minister. Fourth generation grain farmer Brett Swan said he was worried about the project's effect on the community, especially noise, shadow flicker and population of Brolgers. Although there are no turbines proposed on his land, there was a Brolger nesting site on his farm, 800 metres from the closest proposed wind turbine, despite government guidelines requiring a buffer of over three kilometres. Come with me now as we look at the story from the Washington Post, and it's by Kasha Patel. And the headline for Kasha's story is The Unexpected Force That May Make Us Get Less Sleep. The story begins. Nikodobrovic couldn't fall asleep again. And now he's getting grumpy. It was October 2015 and San Diego was experiencing historically warm fall temperatures in the mid seventies. The normally cool and dry city logged its three warmest October nights on record, at the time, during an unprecedented heat wave. The area had experienced its warmest October on record, at about 7.7 degrees above average. Obradovich was living with his wife in a condo with no air conditioner, which isn't unusual given the typical mild weather year-round. He said a lot of places don't have air conditioning, especially in the more bare-bones living spaces, especially ones that graduate students like himself at the time can afford to live in. He tried coping by placing a wet towel on himself while falling asleep, but it would get too cold. He covered himself with a blanket, but then he would run too hot. It was like a demented version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but there was no just right, he said. For about a week during the heat wave, he struggled to fall asleep. The sleep deprivation left him too tired to continue his daily exercise routine. He and his fellow graduate students weren't able to focus on their work. Next we have our story from SBS News and the headline for that story is How Climate Change is Affecting El Niño and La Niña Human-caused greenhouse gas emissions mean strong El Niño and La Niña events are occurring more often according to our new research which provides important new evidence of the human fingerprint on Earth's climate. For more than 30 years climate researchers have puzzled over the link between human-caused climate change and El Niño and La Niña events we set out to bridge that knowledge gap. Climate scientists have long observed a correlation between climate change impacts on our oceans and atmosphere and the increase in greenhouse gas emissions from human activity. Our research examined when this activity may have started to make El Niño and La Niña events more extreme. Our deep analysis found a relationship between human-caused greenhouse gas activity and changes to El Niño and La Niña. French President Emmanuel Macron has urged the EU to pause its climate efforts. Listen to this.
4: Last Thursday, during a presentation on how to reindustrialize France, the President Emmanuel Macron urged the EU to pause new environmental regulations, saying the 27-member bloc had already done far more than other major economies. Have a listen.::
1: Moi j'appelle à la pause réglementaire européenne. Maintenant, il faut qu'on execute, il faut pas qu'on fasse. De it's an
4: announcement that prompted quite a lot of criticism, especially from left-wing politicians as well as environmental groups. For example, Manuel Bompard, a French left-wing politician, tweeted Climate change doesn't take a break. This request is irresponsible. However, Roland Lescure, who's the French minister representing the industry, a sector defended Emmanuel Macron, saying Europeans emit much less than the population of China, the US, as well as India. He also claimed the EU is the only part of the world to have reduced its greenhouse gas emissions over the past 20 years. So is that true? Well, the first thing that we looked at is which countries are the largest greenhouse gas emitters in the world. Per capita. And according to a UN report published in 2022, the US is the largest greenhouse gas emitter with over 14 tons of CO2 emitted per capita, followed by Russia, 13 tons per capita, then China at 9.7 tons. So the EU is still one of the largest emitters, placing sixth with 7.2 tonnes per capita emitted, while the world average is approximately 6.3 tonnes per capita. So contrary to what the French industry minister announced, well, the EU emits three times more greenhouse gases than India. However, what's true is that the EU is one of the rare parts on Earth to have reduced its greenhouse gas emissions since uh, the 90s. So these have decreased approximately by 24% for the European Union, according to the World Bank. The U.S.'s greenhouse gas emissions have increased by 3.7% over the past 30 years. China, on the other hand, saw its emissions increase by nearly 300% during the same time period. India saw a rise of 178%. So it's true that Europe is still moving faster than other countries when it comes to decreasing emissions. However, a United Nations report released in 2021 found that even if every country in the world pledged to reduce its greenhouse gases, well, the planet would still see an increase in temperature of 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, leading to what they say would be catastrophic changes unless countries definitely transform their economies.
0: Let's switch now to a story from the conversation. The story has the headline, Painting with Fire, how Northern Australia developed one of the world's best bushfire management programs. The story begins. Right now, hundreds of bushfires are burning across Northern Australia, but this is not a wildfire catastrophe. In fact, these burns are making things safer in one of the most fire-prone landscapes in the world. From April to June each year, fire managers such as traditional owners, park rangers and pastoralists, aim to create small, cool fires with care and precision to reduce fuel loads before conditions get severe later in the dry season. This work, painting landscapes with fire, is constantly informed by satellite data. The combination of space technology with indigenous knowledge and the knowledge of pastoralists and park rangers has been everyday practice across Northern Australia, for the past 20 years. Not only does this work produce some of the best fire management outcomes in the world, it also demonstrates how cutting-edge technology can inform local and traditional knowledge for environmental management. And now we have a story from Stuff, which should be of great concern to coffee drinkers. The headline for the story is, Climate change will cut land for coffee by more than 50%, report says. The story begins. Climate change will reduce the land available for coffee by 54% by 2100, even if global temperatures are contained to internationally agreed targets, according to a new report. Coffee growers from Honduras to Ethiopia said they are already suffering from climate destabilisation and the charity Christian Aid is calling on the UK government to help by cancelling historic debts and raising money to pay for climate loss and damage. The charity has calculated that rising temperatures and unpredictable conditions will shrink the world's land suitable for growing coffee by 54.4%, even if global temperatures are limited to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. More than half the coffee drink in the UK comes from Brazil and Vietnam two countries particularly vulnerable to climate change. I've been following the climate conversation for nearly 20 years now. And for 15 of those years, it was like there was an information drought. The scientists were, of course, talking about the issue. They were explaining to us, or those who would listen, why global warming was happening, what the causes were and how, in a limited way, how we should respond. Of course, the deniers were active, and they were employing the same strategies as used by the cigarette companies to combat the quit-smoking campaigns. But a few authors were saying things, among them Bill McKibben, who wrote the book The End of Nature, which is credited with being the start of some climate activism. Here in Australia, as far back as 2008, we had the wonderful book Climate Code Red, written by the late Philip Sutton and his friend... David Spratt A reviewer of the book said This is a great book that deserves a broad readership If the earth is saved These straight talking authors will deserve a lot of the credit So although I'm overwhelmed with information these days I really can't get through it all And so what I do is I just introduce a few topics, a few stories And try to put as many as I can in the show notes So please check out the show notes Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. And if by chance you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share it with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis, how we should respond and what we should be asking of those who govern our lives. Earlier I asked for people to respond to my podcast, to respond to what I was saying, what I was doing, and I've had one response. It came from a fellow in Geelong, who to me is an inspiration because he's a fellow podcaster. He said he hoped I would find the energy to do another thousand episodes. Boy, that's a lot. I hope I live long enough to do that, and that my wife has the patience. So if you want to comment, and I'd love to hear from you, you can do that at r.mclean7 at iCloud.com. And so, until we talk again, I urge you all to take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.